Hi, and welcome to the Inside Out Security Show. I'm your host, Cindy Ng, and today I'm joined by security experts, Mike Buffy and Mike Thompson. I'm going to refer to you guys as Buckby and Thompson. Hey, guys. Hello. Hey, Cindy. So in a previous show, we talked about the mirror attack on Brian Krebs's website. He's a cybersecurity journalist, and it was a retribution attack for something he wrote. And it was written that his host blocked about 250 DDoS attacks this year. And and the latest Mira attack, it was so big that they couldn't block it anymore. And it was taking away uh, resources from their paying customers. And so before we talk about last Friday's attack on Dyne, can you guys explain how an Internet of Things botnet like Mira works? Sure. So like any DDoS attack, there's a couple aspects to it. One is that there's a variety of hosts. Um, in this case, it's Internet of Things devices, but a lot of times it's unpatched computer workstations, the personal computers or laptops people have at their house. A lot of times it's also servers like shared uh, server hosts that are used. And the premise is almost always the same, that there needs to be a disproportional request in that the attacking clients that make a request that then is multiplied many times in the response. And this, you know, relationship of going back and forth is what really creates the huge problem that it's more than just a particular request. It's actually the sort of multiplicative aspect of it that really blows up the traffic and all that illegitimate traffic is really what prevents the access then from occurring. The legitimate traffic just gets drowned out. And also even something as simple as if we're not careful with our passwords, that people can easily de-authenticate your system basically and you would be like an unwilling participant in attacking other people. Yeah. And so last Friday's DDoS attack, it was an amplification of Mira. And when it hit the internet traffic server, at DIN, a whole bunch of sites were impacted, Twitter, Spotify, and up to 30,000 Wi-Fi cameras were involved. And so I'm wondering, what are some of the implications of this attack? Your responses, guys? Yeah, I think one of the really kind of troubling things here is, you know, we've seen this explosion of Internet of Things devices. You know, they've been around for a long time when you think of something like a security camera but now with smart homes, you know, people's might have their refrigerator connected to the Internet and our DVR devices or thermostats, you know. So there's all these different devices that are now communicating, um, have network connections. And security has certainly not been a big focus. There's some some noise around Apple's uh, home kit. There's kind of been their push for Internet of Things devices. And uh, it's kind of been slow growth from Apple because they've really stressed security. Encryption and security have been a big aspect of HomeKit. And it's been difficult for, uh, you know, manufacturers to comply with that. So most people are taking the easiest route. You know, they're, they're thinking security is not a big concern for us with these Internet of Things devices. People just want to plug and play, have easy setup. But the problem with that is they're not being patched. Uh, people aren't changing default passwords. And it just leaves this big vulnerability of all these connected devices that no one's really paying attention to. Yeah, I would agree with everything you said. The only aspect of it I would add is that 
think it's going to get worse, not even from a technical perspective, but from an economic one where it's becoming, you know, less and less expensive to put more and more processing and intelligence and connectivity into all sorts of devices. And it's something that if it's even minimally useful, it will still be there. Uh, I think of something like a TV where, you know, almost any TV you get now is a smart TV because the cost of the chip to make it a smart TV is, you know, $5 and over the whole price of the TV, it's minimal. And whether or not you use that, it's still there running. It can still be remotely configured via UPnP. And you don't think about it because we don't think of appliances this way, but it is. It's just like having another computer running in your house, even if it's hiding inside your TV while you're trying to watch Law & Order. Right. How often have you done a firmware update on your TV? Um, never. Because I assume it will brick it. That's actually my first thought is that I will destroy my TV if I try to do a firmware update. So I'm scared to do that. But it seems like maybe I should. And that's us as, you know, technically minded people who are, are avoiding doing things like this, patching our, our smart devices. So think about people who, who don't even realize that the, that implications there. They don't even realize the security risk there. If we're not doing it, who is? I'm, I'm thinking about, like, how do we create a checklist of all the things that we need to be responsible for? The Internet of Things pen tester, Ken Monroe, said that security wasn't built in mind with the internet of things. And I really like Mike Thompson's point about how Apple and HomeKit, and because, you know, he's talking about an ecosystem and, you know, this is an ecosystem that's working in a different way than the random thing I buy off of Amazon that comes from a no-name manufacturer and I plug into my local home network. And if we look at sort of like where things have come before, like we had a very similar thing to internet of things when uh, the switch was from, you know, fairly dumb mobile phones to smartphones. And prior to that, there weren't a lot of things like the over-the-air updates for the underlying operating system on your phone, the forced updates of applications and all of that. And that's really come out of that ecosystem. And hopefully, I think we'll see something along the same lines with the Internet of Things, where is we have Amazon Echo Dots and, you know, Google Home Devices and Nest and, you know, HomeKit, that all of it is part of a larger ecosystem that takes care of that for us as, you know, internet consumers and isn't something where the responsibility comes down to the user. Cause I think it is just too much for anyone to reasonably deal with. One of our engineers told me that like a lot of utilities, uh, oil and gas and electric companies, they're also adopting internet of things and they use that to reduce costs and increase the ease of maintaining things. And then based on what we saw last Friday, I'm really nervous about like a blackout or, or a city going out. And that's what I'm going to do during Thanksgiving. I'm going to be thankful for my utilities and then also create an emergency plan. Sounds good. I was just going to say, you know, I, I, I don't know if there's an easy answer as to like your point. People who don't necessarily have time to think about these things, how do we mitigate the risk? I think, unfortunately, there's going to be growing pains. I mean, that this botnet attack that happened recently brought down the DNS services. That's probably, unfortunately, the first of many. We're going to see more of this. And it's probably going to take some time until this Internet of Things ecosystem is truly secure. You know, there's some things users can do if their manufacturers do provide any sort of security updates that they can manage. That's great. That's baby steps. But until we kind of rethink the implications of all these connected systems, I, I think there's going to be a painful growing period where we see these types of attacks and the side effects of this underutilized uh, security features on these, these devices. 
I'm thinking the internet was kind of broken a long time ago when it was built because then before we even had internet, if security was in mind when we were creating too, it's hard to embed security and privacy when we're innovating. And that's also another issue. Well, it's interesting. I don't know if you heard, there was a pithy quote going around, which was that the internet was originally designed to survive nuclear attack. And now it's being brought down by toasters. Does so many, <laughs> you know, just little IOT devices. Yeah. Do you guys have any internet of thing devices at home that you've really incorporated into your life? Oh, I do. So I have one that's kind of on the edge, which is baby monitors. Like this comes up a lot that um, there's a lot of different baby monitors, the video ones that do audio and stuff. And they are sort of notoriously, you know, have issues of sending all the video to factories or places and other countries where we don't know what exactly is happening with them and stuff. So we have a few uh, dumb versions of those that aren't on the Wi-Fi that just work over um, local radio stuff. And then we have an Amazon Echo Dot which everyone in the house loves because they can just run up to it. My daughter can run up to it and just yells like, Alexa, play Katy Perry. And then she can like run away and just dance to Katy Perry. So that's good. And like those types of devices. And I'm just also so paranoid. Do you have like a security plan or you're just kind of enjoying it as like a part of your life? I'm thinking like humans, there's a TV show where they have like a housekeeper and it's like a robot, a human-ish robot. And I guess Alexa is like, a you can give it commands and it'll do stuff. Does it ever say, I don't understand what your question is or? Oh yes, all the time. Cause my kids ask crazy questions. They ask questions like, how many ducks are there in the world? Like how many ducks are there? And you know, of course, Alexa has no idea. So. But do you ever think about the security? Oh, I definitely think about the security aspect of it. And I think, you know, part of it is coming from a vendor, you know, that you kind of trust like Amazon. And I have uh, my Wi-Fi network split out into different networks and route the traffic, you know, to sort of more and less trusted things. And, you know, for Verona's work, everything is over a VPN. I mean, so there's definitely steps in there that are separate from just letting anything go wild. But it's still, it's still more than I would like to do. I'd like for it, you know, to somehow make more sense and be easier. I think you bring up a good question about security, especially with things like Echo and Alexa. I mean, me personally, I've, you know, I hear about these great things you can do um, with Amazon Echo, and it seems like this kind of fantastic future. But, you know, when I first heard it announced, my, my first thought went to 1984 and Big Brother and having a, a device that's always listening to me. At all times. I mean, that just seems scary. So the question is, with some of the approach to these different devices, I mean, obviously, you know, Google's pushing their Google Assistant. Apple's trying to improve Siri. Amazon has Echo. Like, all these companies are putting a lot of, you know, development resources into AI. This is obviously what they think the next big push is. You know, the Google Pixel phone, that was kind of the main selling point is, like, the advanced features. Where is this computation happening? Is it happening on the device? Or are you putting an input, it's sending your input out into the cloud and, you know, any of the computation in terms of, you know, responding to your request, is that happening on their servers? So, you know, if you're including any personal information, is this stuff happening locally on your secure device or is it, you know, going somewhere, some third-party platform where all this computation is happening? So that's one of the things that scares me. You know, if I'm, if I'm saying things and asking the Echo to retrieve information for me, and it knows things about my life. 
Is that staying in my home or is that going to Amazon servers somewhere that I have no control over? Well, so in answer to that question, almost all of these systems work off of keywords. And so once you say the keyword of Alexa or Siri or Cortana, at that point, it then sends everything past that, like the next phrase out to the cloud, you know, to the computation where it is done. And I get what you're saying. And I have sort of the same sort of visceral response. But, you know, like I mentioned earlier, a lot of the IoT stuff, I feel um, we can look to something like mobile phones. Like all of us have one or more smartphones that we carry with us all the time that have, you know, microphones on. There's been proven attacks where beyond even someone just like butt dialing on accident, having a people overhear stuff that those can be turned on by law enforcement or other things. That's a huge thing. The same as like, you know, typing into Google to search for stuff. Like, I'm not sure it's really that different than if it's done speech to text, if that happens first and then the the query goes. I, I do think, you know, you should have, you know, uh, ability to see what's there and to manage that. But I don't know if it's categorically different. I was interviewing a password expert last week, and he mentioned that nowadays you can, like, if you're on eBay and you can type within seven to eight characters, they can tell whether or not you're a male or a female. And then they can serve up a certain kind of gender-based product to you. And at the end of the day, I think what we're thinking about is security and, and privacy. They're two separate things, right? I, I guess I'm even, whatever the opposite of mindful is, I'm like trying to draw that in because I think... <laughs> And if you look, especially like the Amazon devices, like if you buy a Kindle, it is very much like an extension of your greater Amazon account. And the lower priced Kindles, they come with ads that you buy it for $50, but like on the home block screen, it has an ad. And when it's shipped to you, like when you pull it out of the box, it is already logged in as your Amazon account. So when I opened up my Kindle for the first time, it already had like several hundred books that I'd read loaded on it from when they shipped it out of the factory. Oh, wow. And, you know, the same with uh, the Echo Dots, like it knows like, oh, you're already in your Amazon account and it signs you in and it just knows all this stuff already. And to your point of like, you know, do you want to see ads for Katy Perry? Well, I guess if the alternative is to see ads for, you know, someone that, you know, the family's interested in that she has a concert coming to Virginia Beach where I live. Like that's better than seeing something for Norwegian death metal that happens to be in another continent. And it's a relationship of some kind. Maybe it's an abusive relationship where I'm being manipulated into liking Katy Perry. But in my defense, those songs are very catchy. <laughs> I like Katy Perry too. They are very catchy. If you need to dance it out or something, I guess that's what you would play. Thompson is looking very disapproval. No, I was trying to find an article. I was kind of searching over here. I uh, while I know I don't mean to get too far off topic from this Internet of Things security issue, but while we're talking about privacy, Google just made a pretty major change to their privacy policy about what information they can associate with each other. And I was trying to find the details of that. But essentially, they can combine some information that they couldn't before. So it's a little less anonymized than it was previously in terms of you know, what information they're pulling from your, your Gmail and such and your, your Google accounts and whether or not it's uh, anonymous or if it's, you know, tied to your, your name and face. Based on a lot of the research and reading that I've done from privacy experts, everything is always going to be able to re 
nothing's really anonymized and can really be traced back to who you are as a person. And so at the end of the day, it's all about, like Buckby said, a balance and a relationship of how much do we want to share and the option to kind of pull back and to say, hey, no, I think the GDPR, the European regulation in Europe on protecting the data of Europe consumers are just more mindful of that. Maybe it could be of history. Maybe in an America, we're all about just kind of, innov- not that Europe isn't into innovating too, just laws and, and systems uh, aren't really caught up in such a way that's helpful. And Well, I think there's, there's somewhat of a difference between corporate intellectual property protection versus your personal information as it interacts with these corporations. And I I think the big thing is control and consent. If you know these things are happening and you're able to control it and you consent to it, then it's okay. But if that's not the case, then that's bad. Right. There are some privacy experts who wrote an article about how to, how not to be creepy. And, and they said, you know, you should really ask your consumers if it's okay that they pull this information from you. And more than often consumers agree because they're being transparent about it. And so I think when Thompson was mentioning the updates in the Google privacy doc, I, I kind of almost wish that they would just be more explicit about it because I think that everything is being pulled from every single search we make on Google to every email we send on Gmail. So I feel like if people just say, hey, we're collecting these things, here are the risks, and not have it look like a legal doc that be less skeptical and less scared. Well, what are, what are you scared of, Cindy? Like, what do you think Google is going to do with this information? Well, I think there are a lot of data brokers out there. You mentioned the bigger name companies that they have a reputation. But, you know, what about the smaller companies that aren't as security minded and they'll just say, okay, I'm going to buy some data from data brokers and make this product happen. And so I'm, I'm kind of nervous about that, that they haven't built up a reputation for themselves. I mean, even if we are talking about Google, you know, we think of this as this, you know, very advanced company. They have all the resources in the world to protect us. But here at Veronis, what do we talk about? We talk about insider threats as well. That's not to say there's not some rogue employee at Google. And in fact, there's been cases of that in the past. A couple of years ago, it might have been even like seven years ago or so at this point, I don't really remember, but there was some engineer at, at Google and he had met a, a young man through like a big brother program and he got a little too attached and he started reading this kid's email and finding about what girls he had crushes on and such and was teasing him about this. And he was just some, you know, person with enough access at Google to be able to read this person's private chats and understand stuff that he shouldn't have been able to see. So that's, that was one bad egg, but you know, that he has all the access in the world he could want into that kid's personal life just via his Google account. See like that. See, I can definitely see that as an issue, but if we come down on the side of like criminals, like really what we're talking about insider criminals, like, I'm not sure to what extent. And I guess, maybe this is your argument, Cindy, is that if the data doesn't exist, it can't be found and maybe used to embarrass you or maybe used to 
I influence see, you in some way? It was probably my interview with uh, the Privacy by Design author Ann Kavakian. She said, you know, in a democracy, you really need space to think away from prying eyes and ears and that you need to be able to express your thoughts comfortably in your own home. And so I like some of the tools that Buckby found that's relevant to our discussion today. There's a DNS checker. What else? Break it down for us, Mike. So this big DDoS attack that happened, it was really targeted at a company called DIN, D-Y-N, Dynamic DNS. And so the thought, we're trying to speculate about the attacker's mind, that if they could bring down this foundational uh, aspect of a lot of large sites, they could bring a lot of those sites down. And so it wasn't so much Twitter directly was attacked, Twitter was down, or Shopify, or all these other sites. It was that the DNS that helped indicate where the traffic should go was messed up at the DNS provider level. And so, well, that is obviously sort of this giant event a lot of times this stuff happens at a local level that, you know, if there was a DDoS attack that was against a specific company, if it was against a specific server, or sadly and weirdly, I think a lot of times it's very easy to mess up your own DNS. So a very useful tool is what's my DNS.net, which just gives you, uh, you can put in any DNS record and then sort of check at a lot of the top level ISPs over the world if that record has made it out and if it's responding. So with this, you'd be able to see like, oh, the Amazon, you know, DNS that's in New York availability zone, that's not responding, but the other ones are. So, you know, Brazil's working, but this U.S. isn't. And so that's very useful. And then at a personal level, the utility that's used on Unix systems is DIG for uh, diagnostic. And so you type in DIG and then a domain name, and it will tell you a bunch of information about it. But very usefully, uh, toolbox.googleapps.com has a whole online version of this that uses the open Google domain servers. And so these are updated very quickly. And so it's a great way to be able to run just a check and see if like, oh, the C name for veronis.com is up and running and pointing to the right place. So, you know, this is something I look at a lot when I, you know, set up a new device or get a new router. You know, one of the first changes I make is change the default DNS server. You know, I don't necessarily want you know, Time Warner Cable's DNS server handling all my traffic or something. I might use OpenDNS or, you know, every IT admin knows 8.8.8.8, right? You know, yeah. point to Google's DNS server. So is there a benefit for, you know, end users and consumers and kind of, you know, you know average day-to-day -day computer users to make that personal change and say either on my router or on my, on my workstation change what my DNS server is? Is that going to provide any extra layer of either security or stability in terms of internet access? I think that's one of those very situational things, depending on what you change it to. Like we're talking about Google having so much information. Well, certainly running their own DNS servers is just another layer of that. And, you know, maybe it's better than your local ISP. But there's a lot of, you mentioned open DNS. I know there's a few DNS services that work as both like ad blocking and content blocking that, you know, you have kids, you don't want them getting into something weird. You can change the DNS on the devices and will help enforce those limits. Great. Thanks for the recommendations. And thanks to both Mike's, all our listeners for joining us today. If you want to follow us on Twitter to find some of the stories that we've been discussing, you can find us at infosec underscore podcast. And if you want to subscribe to this podcast, you can go to iTunes and search for the Inside Out Security Show. Please leave us a rating. It'll help people find our show. 
Thanks, and we'll meet up again next week. 